I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and you're listening to Startup Stories, the weekly show from the Financial Times in which I talk to entrepreneurs about the joys and challenges of starting a business. When Peter Mulman's mum had some bad experience making her first purchase online in 2007, he decided there must be a way to guide consumers to businesses they could trust. The result was Trustpilot. He told me how it came about. Back in 2007, when I started Trustpilot, the internet was a very, very different place. I think when you bought something online, the success criteria was that people would not steal your credit card information, and with a bit of luck, what you bought would eventually arrive. And it was very hard to find any structured information about a business. There would be somebody under the nickname of the mysterious Dr. Death who had wrote about a hardware company on a forum, or there would be a blog post or some newspaper article. But you really had to look pretty hard, and it was hard to tell what was good and what was bad. And so as an entrepreneur, you say, huh, there's something about this area of the world where the solutions are not good, and you can do something that's better. And so there are three key things here. One is people like my mom having a very hard time buying online and getting bad experiences. In parallel with that, I was actually running my own little e-commerce business where I was selling cables connecting the Sony Ericsson phone. You see, this is 10 years ago now, with a computer. And on eBay, we had tens of thousands of positive reviews. So then we opened a website. Nobody bought from it because they thought we were just two kids in an apartment selling cables, which sadly happened to be the truth. Sometimes on the internet, uh, it is the reality. Yes, it is the reality, right? So we thought, hey, wait a minute. Like, If people see all these positive stories about us, they have no hesitancy at all to complete the purchase. Whereas if they're just doing a Google search, they're much more skeptical. So could we somehow take that system into the wider world? And then the third was when I realized I'm really onto something. I read about this poor group of people that went to a hotel in Turkey. The bathrooms didn't work. The travel agent didn't want to give them new hotel rooms. And I thought that would be so wonderful to read about before you went on that trip, right? (laughs) And all these things are coming together. And I'm saying, hey, what if there was a website where you as a person could ride what happened to you, whether it was good or bad, for a company in the online world? So what did you do to get this idea turned into reality? First, at the time, I think I decided I would set aside a year to do it. And I was very fortunate. I had a rich uncle. And I called him and I said, uh, hey, I have this idea for a website. I need £100,000. And he said, I'll give you 10000 and I want half the business. <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> but then we were flying. And then I was going through all my classmates. 
And uh, if you were available and didn't have a job at the time, you qualified. And I tried to persuade a few people to join the team and did that. This was people from university? Yes. So we were all in our early 20s and we had very little experience, but a lot of enthusiasm. And where were you based at this time? In the second largest city in Denmark. It's called Aarhus. It's a student town. So you were able to get a lot of ex-students to work? Yeah, so we were a team of four, and then we just started to build the website. So I was CEO, which doesn't mean that much when you're just four people. One of the guys could write some code, one of the guys could do a bit of design. But I think the most important thing is that we did something. Because I've met so many people afterwards where they said, oh, I thought about that idea, or "Ah, I was almost doing something. Okay, so we had a little bit of money from my uncle, but the only real difference was actually just that we did something. How important is it to find that really good tech expertise in the business? Oh, that, I think that's enormously important. And, and it's actually a mistake that I see a lot of potential founders do is that they outsource it. So, for example, to an agency. And I think that can be wise if you're, say, a big bank and you know nothing about doing an app. And then you can get a, some experts do that for you. But I think when you are a new company, it's one of the most important things, if not the most important thing, that you are creating a team. And you should see yourself as you are creating the team that can build the company. So getting that tech experience in is, is, I think, the most important thing, probably. So who was the tech expert to begin with, and how did you find them? His name was Mark, and I found him by going to all the universities and business schools. I think I went to 20 or 25 different places in the city, like even went to the nursing school, the bars. And I had this job ad that I had printed. You know, where it was a description of the project and my phone number. And then, you you know, you have these 10 little slippers at the bottom of the page that you can rip off. And I ripped off the two to make it look like it was popular. <laughs> and uh, then I got one person that wrote me and said, hey, I know this guy, Mark. He may be it. And that was all I needed. Then I was started. But you can say the matching the business competences with the tech competences is often very hard for people. That was actually one of my fortes as a young entrepreneur. I realized that I don't know everything and I'm very inexperienced. So then I have to bring in very experienced older people, or at least older than me, who have tried more. So I brought in other very seasoned entrepreneurs and used their network to bring in more senior people. So who were these other entrepreneurs? Where did you find them? So later in the business, we raised a bit of money from some venture capital company, and they introduced me to the first one, who turned out to be my CFO. And then he just used his network to bring on the rest of them. <laughs> so again, a little bit like the developers, often you just need one, and then you're going. And I think also something I've reflected on later, before starting the company, I had not traveled much. Now we have offices, I think, in seven places in the world, and so I travel a lot. And what I find unique about Denmark and Scandinavia is actually the degree of trust in society, which is really quite magical. And I took that for granted for a very long time. The fact that you say you can leave your baby out at a cafe or if you trust a stranger to look after your bike, she will look after it. And that if you bring in older, more experienced people, they won't take advantage of you. They will actually help you. And in some sense, I find that the fabric of trust is deteriorating in today's society. So if we can bring that back into the world, I find then that's very meaningful. How do you weed out those fake reviews? 
Yeah, so that's obviously been one of the most important challenges for the business. We've been helped a lot by dramatic and fast improvements in artificial intelligence and how you use that combined with big data. So we gather hundreds of data points about every person visiting the website, every person using the website. And that allows us to create very rich profiles of what is normal behavior on the website. And then it makes it possible to then say, hey, this behavior is actually very, very statistically unusual. So we need to take a closer look at that. And then we have a mix of machines just weeding out the worst that we just know is bad. And then we actually have a pretty big team. I think we have 30 people who are then looking at the things that the machines are flagging. So just a a simple, simple example could be, let's say you have a company in London and they suddenly get hundreds of reviews written by people in a whole other part of the world. So it's a little bit like when your credit card company blocks your credit card and you say, hey, why did you do that? And they say, well, you went to Tesco's and then 20 minutes later, your card was used in China. We don't think you can make it to China in 20 minutes. (laughs) So we took the liberty of blocking it. And you're like, oh, that makes sense. And a little bit like that, we do the same thing in the world of reviews. But then also what's actually helping us is that we have so many people using the website. We have millions of people using the website and they're often very helpful in telling us, hey, this looks odd. I bought from this company. It was really bad, but they have a lot of good reviews on your website. Could you take a closer look at it? Or even the case where they just say, hey, I used to work for this business. I know that my ex-boss was writing fake reviews. You should look at that. And so the combination of the machines and the algorithms, our staff and the users makes for a pretty good system. You should not look at reviews as an absolute truth. You should use it as a helpful tool. So you trust in the algorithms and the technology helps you, but you still need the human factor. What exactly are these people doing? What do you train them to do to be able to spot that sort of untrustworthy behavior? Actually, there's something about humans where inherently what we're very, very good at is seeing what's outside of the normal. So, for example, I'm now looking at a red microphone in a world of blue. And instantly your eye is drawn to that. And the same is true when you're looking at all these data points. Your eye is looking at all the data and you're saying, hey, what's odd here? What's weird? And then the training is that sometimes the world just is weird. And sometimes it's normal that you have these outliers. And then there's a certain art in distinguishing what's just normal weird from what's fake weird. What we also do, however, is that we reach out to tens of thousands of users and ask them to actually document their purchase. So this is an extra tool that we're using where we're saying, hey, it looks like something is weird here. Could you kindly send us your receipt or an order confirmation so that we can actually get a documented proof that uh, you had a real purchase from this company? And we find that's also very, very helpful. So it's the customers as well that are part of building that trust. Indeed. The customers that then turn into reviewers. Can you give an example of a particular moment where there has been this sort of trust breach and how you've dealt with it. Yeah, it goes from the small example where somebody notifies us and says, hey, these reviews are probably fake, and then we look into them and remove them, and then we say thanks for that, to the more blatant examples where we can really see that there was, you can say, a strong intent from the company side. 
to manipulate the rating on our site. And then what we do is that we actually put what we call a consumer warning on the profile page for that business. So that if you visit the site, you can see that there was an attempt of manipulation and then you should proceed with caution. But what we should also be mindful of is that 99 out of 100 companies actually play by the rules. 99 out of 100 companies are good companies that are using this to learn about their business, to get closer to their customers, and to win business because they're a good company. And so I think that's also a very, very important element of it, that most companies use reviews for what they're intended to. Trust, though, is hard to get and easily lost. Is that not a concern for you, given you rely on this? Yes. It's a little bit like you are an intelligence agency, where every day you have to catch the bad guys. And if you fail once, you fail. So we have to strive for having a near-perfect track record, which is over time, of course, impossible. But what I do take some comfort in is that if I compare our current track record and our current ability to give you something that's useful, where I can say, hey, you should look at this and it can make you able to take a more informed decision. And if I compare what's on our site today with what was available 10 years ago, I find that we have accomplished a lot. We did a scan of the European internet in 2008 or 2009. And in total, we found roughly 30,000 reviews of companies in Europe. That was in the online world. So that excludes restaurants and hotels, but of businesses selling stuff online. 30,000. And today, that's less than what we get in a day. Going from four people in a small town in Denmark to a global operation presumably requires a large change in leadership style. How have you managed that? Yeah, it's something that I always felt I was nine months behind in the sense that the job redefines itself every six or every 12 months. Initially, it was just about getting a lot done. And then later, it becomes much more about setting a direction for the company, a strategic direction, and hiring the right team. And then it becomes about the culture and the information sharing. And the question I ask myself is, how can people make the right decision without asking me what the answer is? But the nature of what's a good CEO for a business changes dramatically. And then, as I said, also surrounding myself with people who have more experience where the art actually was, not knowing when to trust them, but knowing when to trust myself. But I'll say as a human being, the hardest thing has probably been that the demand and the expectation is always so much bigger than what you can deliver, even when you're doing great. And coming to terms with that and saying, hey, it's okay that we're not growing with 500% because actually 200 is pretty good. So where next for Trustpilot? If we look at it in a historical context, the first one was just getting as many reviews of as many businesses as possible so that we could be useful for you as a person to take more informed choices. And and I think the next journey is really about creating a sense of collaboration between us as people and the businesses in the sense that I find that today most companies actually are five-star companies. So the problem for the businesses is that good is no longer good enough. Today, you need to be great. 
And most companies, I find, has an opportunity to become great by really embracing their customers, by really saying we want to include the customers and how we do customer service and how we do ideation and learning from the customers how you can go from creating good experiences to creating great experiences. Because ultimately, that's what we want as a consumer. And as a business to compete, you need to be able to take that step from good to great. And I think that you can do that by inviting your customers into that process. And that's what we're taking a big step into in 2018 and beyond. What does that mean you doing as an entrepreneur? It means two things. First, it means I have to tell that story to all everybody working in Trustpilot and to the customer base and to the users so that people understand what is it we want to do and why do we want to do it. I think telling the why is always important. People always focus on the the what and the how, and they forget the why. Secondly, we have to turn it into action, and that's where it becomes difficult for me as a young entrepreneur because I was used to just like, hey, move aside, I'll take the keyboard, I'll do this, and now it's this slow grinding process where we set goals, we communicate them broadly, we form teams that are working on it, and then in maybe nine months we've actually done something. (laughs) But in nine months the result will be better. We've seen a bigger erosion of trust as more people get online. We've seen people berating the social media sites for not being more responsible. You've got responsibilities here. How do you approach that? Yeah, I think that it's very, very important as a platform in today's world that you recognize that responsibility. You cannot just say, hey, we're a platform where everybody can write what they think. You have to say you are also a guardian of how that platform is being used. I think that's crucial. And so in that sense, as a reviews website, it's very important that we look at how to ensure the integrity of the reviews. It's crucial. But I also think it's very important that we educate consumers and and companies not to fall into certain pitfalls. So with the businesses, it's important to educate them and say, actually, there's an easy way to get good reviews, which is to have good customer service and then invite your customers to give you a review. And that's the preferred route overriding fakes and to you as a consumer then say, hey, you know what? When you're writing a review, you're actually writing into a human being. There's a human being who owns that company. It's just like you. They have a mom and they have feelings too and they want constructive feedback. So don't just give them the worst, also give them the best and be constructive. And I think if we can tell people to do those two things, then I think we've lived up to our responsibility. I asked Waverly Deutsch of Chicago's Booth School of Business to comment on Peter's experience of finding that first crucial hire. The problem with finding that first key person, as Peter discussed, is that you're not really finding a hire. You're finding a business partner because you typically have very little capital, so you can't pay market salaries. You can't offer the great upside and benefits that particularly people in the technical world can get from other kinds of jobs. So what you're really doing is you're recruiting somebody to buy into your vision. It's more about getting someone to buy into that vision than it is a traditional hire. And you certainly can't go through the usual process of posting for a job and interviewing people and evaluating resumes. It has to be a networking intensive activity. You have to meet a lot of people and look for not just a skill set, but a passion and a commitment and a buy-in and also a real working fit, right? Because 
early-stage startup companies describe themselves as almost families. They spend so much time together and they work so closely together, you have to have a cultural fit. You know, for Peter to find a tech co-founder the way he did was one of the elements of luck, I think, that he would acknowledge in his path to building Trustpilot. I think in this new world of social media, you have to establish a personal brand on the internet so that when you meet somebody, if they Google you, if they look you up, they can see your competence, your intellectual capital, your participation in that world of social media as a credibility builder. So do you have a blog or do you have followers on Twitter or have you already contributed vision to the space that you're attempting to start your company in? I think that's a big part of getting to know people nowadays that 10 years ago when Peter started was much less important. What advice would Peter give his younger self on starting a business? One would be everything will be okay. If you're a young entrepreneur, if you're a young anybody and you're out in the world and it's extremely intense, at least for me, I overcompensate by overthinking it, which is great for the business because usually if you think long and hard, you get to the right response. But sometimes as a human being, it can be very exhausting. I read an article by a politician who said that if every day he could get one really great laugh with some people he loved, then that was a good day. So I think that would be the one advice that I would give myself. Next week, we talk to an entrepreneur who viewed the successful sale of her company as something of a personal failure. Don't forget, you can catch up on previous episodes of Startup Stories if you visit our special page, ft.com forward slash startup. And if you like this podcast, do remember to write a review on iTunes or share it with friends on Twitter and Facebook. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.